Yes. We are in a series called Journey to Easter. And we are going through the Passion Week and we're following Jesus at the most emotional and tumultuous time of his life. And we want to, as all three congregations, look at different lessons, different things that Jesus shows us about himself, his character, his ministry, and what he expects of us. And we really want to dig in to that last week of Jesus' life, preparing to celebrate Easter. And this week, what we want to talk about is receiving, the whole idea of receiving. And we're really going to talk about communion in the Last Supper today. But just like this whole series is a journey to Easter, this message is sort of a journey to communion. We're going to take communion together at the end of the service, but I want to walk us up to communion, and I want to, I want to feel the significance of what it is we're about to do at the end. So hopefully we experience it deeply and truly and sincerely, as deeply and truly and sincerely as we can. Does that make sense? Yes. That's the goal tonight. But before we get there, I want to play a little game about receiving, about whether or not you're going to take something, whether or not you're going to receive something. Okay, you guys ready for game time? Yeah. All right, we're going to play a game. I'm going to ask two questions after four scenarios, first three at the beginning and the last ones at the end. Do you want to take it, and do you actually take it? Okay, here's scenario one. Your car runs out of gas. You're less than a mile from work. It's a beautiful sunny day. You have plenty of time to walk, and the tow truck is on the way to get your car. But this van pulls up and offers you a ride. <laughs> Does anyone want to take it? Nobody wants to take a ride from a free candy van. Okay, great. So do you actually take it? Of course not. You choose to walk. Why in the world would you take that ride? Look, you've got a problem, right? Your car's out of gas. But is that, is that problem really critical? That's not that critical of a problem, right? Can you fix this problem? Yes, you can fix it yourself. And why would you take something that you don't really need in a situation that isn't that serious from someone that you really don't trust? Right? Okay, so this is kind of a no-brainer. Scenario two. This is a little harder. It is absolutely critical that you get $100 by 2 in the afternoon, or you will miss a deadline, and there will be huge consequences. You are flat broke. Super manipulative Aunt Gertrude <laughs> finds out about the situation and offers you $100. <laughs> she says, it's okay, sweetie. You couldn't possibly handle this on your own. Do you want to take it? You want to take it from super manipulative Aunt Gertrude? Yeah. No, I think Jenny's answering for me, man. Maybe some of you guys want to take it. I don't want to take it. No way do I want to take the money. Not from her, man. But do I actually take it? Yeah, I, maybe I think all of us do. We actually take it. Why? Because the problem is super critical this time. And I can't solve it myself this time. And in a situation like this, she's kind of bending my arm behind my back. I'm like, ugh, I'm loath to do it, right? But I'm taking the 100 bucks, and I am paying her back 110 as fast as I can. I'm not happy about receiving this one, but I do it. Scenario three, quadruple engine failure. The plane is going down fast. A skydiving instructor happens to be aboard and offers you a parachute. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
is this as much of a no-brainer as scenario one, right? Scenario one was no way, this one is absolutely, I don't even care if he's a skydiving instructor. I don't care if that parachute has been like inspected recently or not. I'm gonna blow the dust off it and it's better than dying, right? Critical situation, can't solve it myself, and I don't care who helps me, man. I just need to get help. It's that serious. We're going to look at a situation like this in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark. I chose the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. He fed 4,000 and 5,000. It's pretty interesting, but he did it twice. You get a reputation when you start doing stuff like this. People start following you. We're going to talk about that, too. But it paints the picture of why the people take it in Mark 8. Mark 8, 1 through 9. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they've already been with me how many days? Three, three. three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? I might have asked a different question. I might have said, if you knew that, why did you lead them three days out into a remote place? <laughs> Are you planning this, Jesus? Interesting. I think he was. Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Seven little loaves for 4,000 people. Interesting plan. They did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. 4,000 people, so starving they're about to collapse. They're not a little hungry. It's not like they just had a brunch and you're offering them an appetizer. These people are dying for food. They've got a few loaves and a few fish. Jesus blesses it, breaks it, distributes it, and they have leftovers. Now that's a miracle, man. Why did the people take the bread? They were starving. Thank you, Jimmy. This is a no-brainer, right? They were hungry. Like, we're literally going to die if we don't get some food. Jesus says, would you like some bread and fish? Yes. I don't even care if it's stale. Feed me pumpernickel. It doesn't matter. I need the food. They're hungry. Now, they don't understand that Jesus is trying to make a larger point. Jesus isn't just feeding them bread to feed them. He'll do that. But Jesus is trying to say something very deep and very true. I'm not sure that that's why they took it, though. I'm pretty sure they were just starting. And that's illustrated by the next question. Why did the people continue to follow Jesus? Was it because they understood this amazing parable they did? They were amazed by his wisdom and like, oh, I see the symbolism behind that. I don't think so. And we can look in John chapter 6 and we can see that there is quite another reason that these crowds kept following Jesus like so many sad puppies. John 6, 24 to 26. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, this is right after he feeds the 5,000, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus, this huge crowd. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, 
Not because you understood the sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your full. You're, just, you're not looking for me because you understood what I did. You're looking for me because you ate some food and you got full. So why did the crowds keep following Jesus? Because they were still hungry. He fed them once. They're like, if I follow him again, that bread is pretty good, man. Now, because they're not really getting it, this leads to a conflict. Pretty soon they get upset. But why do they get upset with Jesus? This is also explained in the same chapter of John. John chapter 6, 30 to 34. They asked him, they're asking Jesus now, Hey, man, uh, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Hey, here's an idea. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're like playing Jesus. They're like, hey, we'd really love to believe in you. Why don't you give us a sign? How about another lunch? Remember, like, our ancestors ate bread in the wilderness. This is a great idea, Jesus. It's in the Bible and stuff. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, he talks more here about how they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and he freaks everybody out. They wouldn't have been so freaked out had they understood the point of the sign he did in the first place, but they didn't. So Jesus has to make it explicit. And when he does, everyone gets offended, even his disciples. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? They got upset with Jesus because they missed the point. Jesus actually cares about your practical needs. He did then, he does now. It is true that he fed those people because they were hungry. That's the kind of thing God does. But Jesus was making a larger point, and the people totally missed it. And I want to make sure that we don't miss it tonight. Okay? Excellent. Which brings up a question. We mentioned this manna thing. When the people came up to Jesus and they said, give us a sign... How about manna from heaven, like our ancestors got? They didn't just pick that arbitrarily. It probably was, partly because they were hungry, but this manna thing was a big, big deal. This goes back to Exodus 16, 4, and 31. Now, let me paint this picture, actually, before I, before I read this slide. Who's ever heard of the Exodus? If you were forced to go to church three days a week, every week, like I did when I was a kid, thank you, Mom. I was actually thankful now. You know that maybe the biggest event in the history of the Israelite people ever, the number one thing, was when they were rescued out of Egypt. They were sent to Egypt. They were taken care of for a while. They grew from like a dozen people to some, guess, up to a million plus people. They really prospered. They became a great nation in Egypt, and that's good. But they were a slave nation, and they were abused, and that's bad. So they cried out to God for deliverance, and God finally delivers his people. But he delivers his people out of Egypt into the middle of nowhere. He takes them into a desert, and that's a problem. When you're in a desert, you need some food. 
Enter manna. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. You have to imagine. You're in the middle of the desert. You're going to starve. You have nothing to eat. You've just been miraculously saved. You've walked across an ocean that was separated from you on dry land. You've seen all the amazing plagues. You go out in the desert and you realize, oh, all that's happened just so we can die of starvation. That doesn't seem quite right. But God gave them manna every day. They walked out and there it was on the ground. It sustained them every day. Manna is how God sustained his people when he saved them from Egypt. Manna was what made the salvation from Egypt work. It wouldn't have been a big deal to take them out of Egypt and let them die in the desert. But the manna was there constantly, faithfully, always sustaining them when they needed it. They never went hungry. They could always count on God to give them their manna for the day. And on the Sabbath, or on Friday, manna for two days. FYI. So manna is pretty big. Manna represents the continual salvation of God. And Passover memorializes that salvation. I don't want to get too wordy here, but that whole huge deal of being rescued from Egypt, your oppressed slaves for generations, God works all these miracles, wrenches you out of Egypt, and feeds you miraculously every day. You might want to remember that. Not just for a week or two, forever. So God actually says, it's a good idea for you guys to remember my deliverance forever. We're going to start this feast, and I want you guys to celebrate it every year. Deuteronomy 16, 1-3. God says to Moses, Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal, and it was traditionally a lamb, from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. And why are they going to do this? So that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure. It's important. Why the big to-do? So they remember. And you'll notice right there in the middle it says something interesting. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God. Central to this Passover feast is the animal sacrifice, traditionally a lamb. Sacrifice this to remember the Passover. Well, why is that a big deal? What, why, did, why do they sacrifice a lamb on Passover? And this goes back to the critical night. The evening, after generations of prayer and generations of slavery and generations of forced labor, crying out for God to come through and fulfill his word, that God actually did. And on that day, God told the people this through Moses. This is a shameless mashup of Exodus 12, 3-13, and I really suggest reading it all, but this is kind of the bullet point version. On the tenth day of this month, anybody remember what month it was? On the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. The community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. Does anybody think that's odd? Where they eat the lambs. 
That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Eat it in haste. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. This is a horrifying night. You would have been scared out of your mind if you were in Egypt on this night. This is God saying, my wrath is going to pass through. And this is what you better do to avoid it. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no destructive plague will touch you. The significance of the Lamb is critical, because it's under the blood of the Lamb that God's people are spared from His wrath and caught up in His salvation. Under the literal blood of the Lamb on the door, He comes by your house, He sees the blood marking, covering your door. And you are passed over. The wrath moves on. And the salvation begins that day. In haste. Be ready to go. Because once that wrath passes over, man, we're going to be getting out of there and I'm taking you to a better, better spot. That's a big deal. The New Testament says that we have a Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5.7 Jesus is an amazingly big deal. When he tells them in John chapter 6, you don't even know who you're looking at. You don't even know what you should have, what you should have gotten out of this whole feeding the 5,000 thing. I am the bread that comes from heaven. This manna thing, that foreshadowed me. You need to eat my flesh. Why? Because this lamb whose blood saved you from wrath and brought you into salvation, that was me. That foreshadows this person that you're looking at right now. You better eat this and drink this if you want to be saved. I don't think I give I don't give myself enough credit to think I would have understood that. Could I have taken that without offense? I don't think I could have. I would have been shaken in my boots. I, who is this guy? But this is the truth, man. When we celebrate communion, we are remembering Passover fulfilled. We carry Passover all the way out of the Israelite tradition, all the way up into the Christian tradition, where it belongs. Because Jesus fulfilled what is imaged in the Passover feast. So I want to I end tonight with scenario four. But it's not a game this time. Because knowing what we know now, knowing what we've just heard about who Jesus is, why he did what he did, why he said what he said... We have a great advantage 2,000 years past the events because it doesn't have to seem crazy for us. We can understand the weight of what he did and what he said. I want you to imagine that you're having dinner with the living Son of God. You know he's the fulfillment of both manna and the Passover lamb. You know now that he's the holy sacrifice from God. He's sent to save us from judgment and initiate a new covenant. You know full well everything that he is sitting at the table with him. You're not ignorant like his disciples were. And he makes the following offer. When they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant 
which is poured out for many for the, for, for the forgiveness of sins. Knowing what we know about Jesus, who he really was, what he was really doing, how significant it is that this is the Lamb whose blood saves us from wrath and brings us into salvation. I want you to imagine, for lack of a better image, I've chosen this from the Passion of the Christ, but I, I think it's poignant and it's real. I want you to imagine a real Jesus looking at you, and he's asking you two questions. Do you want to receive it? And will you actually receive it? Because the need is critical. You cannot solve it yourself. And the person offering to solve it could not be more trustworthy or loving. Now I'm going to invite you guys to come up here and, and take the elements right now, actually, and go back to your seat. You do not have to be a member of New Day Community Church, but you must be a Christian to do this. It's very serious. And if you're not a Christian and you'd like to be, you can actually let us know that and let God know that by receiving the elements. And if you are not a Christian and you feel pressured to come up and take the elements because everyone else is, no one's going to make fun of you, man. We will honor your resolve. And if you have questions, talk to me or the prayer team afterwards. But uh, Justin, if you'll play, let's come up and receive the elements.
the bread and the juice right now if you like, or if you can wait just as you sit with the Lord for a few minutes. But I just want to sit and worship in God's presence for the next few minutes. And we're going to end the service that way. So take your time.